Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, Episode 8, The Indie Cast. Here with me today is Matt. Hey, I'm back. Indeed. And we're going to be talking about some indie games. I guess I guess indie games, right? What I, I, I suppose if they're publishing under their own company, that's an indie game. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, indie enough that the designers are coming around locally to have people play their games. That's true. Yeah. How many games do you have to publish before you cease being an indie game creator? I don't know. That's like the question of how much beer do you have to brew before you cease to be a craft brewer? I believe that that's actually legally defined, though. Y- yeah, but who cares about the le- legalities of that? <laughs> Is Sam Adams a craft brewer? I believe legally no. Legally no? I don't remember. Probably not. Actually, I think they might be the largest one. They're like just under the limit. I don't remember. They still advertise as a craft brewer. Yeah, definitely. But it's not Sam Adams. It's the Boston Brewing Company. That's true. Yeah. That is true. I just finished the IPA variety pack. Oh, nice. Not bad. Not Not bad. bad. Yeah. That's my reaction to all of their beer. Right. They don't make (laughs) bad beer. They don't make... I believe it was their good beer. I, th- I believe it was their blueberry beer, which is the only one I've ever poured down the drain. Ooh, it was horrific. It was one of the most horrible things. I've never I've heard of it. So they mouth. they must have. They, I believe it was a winter. I believe it was a winter specials in one of the variety packs. Why are you putting blueberry in your winter specials? Because it's a winter berry. Is it? I think so. We're talking about a lot of things we don't know about right now. That's true. Yeah. We should talk about hockey, which we do know about. No, no more what, hockey, man. What? What? No. no. I, have a, I have a thing. No. Because this is an indie game cast. I have a, a refined game idea for you. So, the the hockey game we were talking about isn't going to work. We're not going to Wait, sit- you, you've come to that conclusion too? I'm accepting your conclusion. Okay. I'm not coming to any conclusions. Who does that? Um, yeah, so we're not going to simulate hockey, but here's what we could do. Okay. We could simulate the hockey expansion draft. There's an, exp- well, you thought the excitement of hockey was going to end with Stanley Cup, but you, you're wrong. We just had the expansion draft because Vegas is getting a hockey team. That's like the What's, two worst things on earth rolled into one. Where could there possibly be a better place to play hockey than the middle of the desert, yeah, Sin City. But anyway, I, I so so this is this is actually interesting. In the expansion draft, they basically got to choose a player from every team. Sure, but the wheeling and dealing that the GM, the general manager, got to got to do was just incredible because he has to balance getting good players that are available with contracts. So here's here's what I'm seeing. There's this whole drafting mechanic. Now, I already. Oh man, it's gonna I already be good. play this game. <laughs> I've played like 300 hours of it on the computer, <laughs> except with baseball. Oh, okay. And it's called Out of the Park Baseball, and it's the best sports simulation game ever made. But it's not hockey themed, and it's not a board game. So I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It couldn't be a board game. It's all right. One of these look, days, look. you're not going to be able to bring hockey into the podcast. And that will be a day of celebration. Let's talk about some indie games, none of which related to hockey. That's true. That's true. But they did relate to dragons. Here be dragons. Here be pirates. What? Oh, well, I was just going through the different games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So... That was my segue. You, you just completely... No, it was good. I, I took the segue. I just took it too far. I'm sorry. Yes. Dragons, specifically. Dragoon. Um, Dragoon, yeah. So this was a game we played at... Well, you should tell them what we, where we played games. Oh, yes. At Christopher's in Porter Square. Every Monday, uh, this guy who runs a company called Board Game Empire, uh, John, I remembered his name this time, <laughs> just hosts some casual board game meetup at Christopher's in Porter Square in cambridge and this past week uh they had a indie game night where a bunch of local indie game designers and publishers came by and showed off their games and dragoon was one of them which Mm -hmm. i first played like three years ago two or three years ago at pax east 
and then it reemerged in front of me at this indie game night. Was it published at the time that you played it at PAX? It was basically, it was the same game and it had all the pieces. They might have been in the middle or just before their first Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. So they've had a, a, a successful Kickstarter and then an expansion Kickstarter, I think. Yes. Which happened just a few months ago, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And Dragoon is an amazing looking game. It looks so good. <laughs> it looks fantastic and in a completely unique way. Yeah, the mat is made out of cloth, so it just folds up. It's not a cardboard. There's no cardboard in it at all. Actually, no, there is cardboard. The The town tiles are cardboard. Yeah. So they screwed yeah. up there <laughs> in eliminating cardboard. But almost all of the pieces are metal. Even the dice are metal. Yeah. Which is looks really cool they have these really nicely sculpted dragon pieces with their layers and they have little uh loyalty tokens uh that you can put on the board everything's metal and it's really nicely heavy metal yes not like the music but it it has weight in your hand but if you're gonna be a heavy metal band you might as well sing about dragons or dragoons dragoons are they called dragoons in the lore of the game i don't know where that comes from I wonder if it's a game about dragons. Well, one of the action cards is called Dragoon. Oh, so maybe these are just dragons and they're actually called in-game Dragoons. And it's not just called Dragoons. So the game... For the sole reason that the game would not be called Dragons. Because you don't want to name your game Dragons. Yeah, we should have looked that up. What is a Dragoon? I don't know. I think they made up the word. I think they took Dragon and added another O. (laughs) And then we're like, a new creature! I mean, it's it's like the uh, the Penny Arcade joke that sci-fi and fantasy is where all the writers go to get rid of their extra Ys and Zs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, yeah, the game looks great. The dragons and the, the dragon dens, the loyalty markers are just beautifully made in different colors of, of metal. So, like, there's a there's like a copper dragon. There's like a, a white metal dragon. Yeah, there's like a silvery one, there's a gold one, and then yeah. a blackish one. Yeah, yeah. Um, In the low light, they all, the three lighter ones kind of looked like the same color. That, which was, that was actually a problem, because we're playing at this Christopher's, it's, you know, basically a bar, um, fancy bar. But it's a pub. Pub, pub, that's the word. Lower, lower light, it was kind of hard to, to distinguish mine from Amber's uh, when we played, yeah. But the game plays two to four. Mm-hmm. Um, it's played on a six by six grid, yes. Which, um, yeah, like this beautiful cloth landscape. Really nice it, art. It's um, it's basically an island, a big island with human settlers, which are represented by these town tiles. Mm-hmm. And you play a dragon or a dragoon, and you you have a um, you have a home den, and then. Yeah, you kind of move around the island, either destroying towns and cities or dominating them. I think you go and just... Demanding is, tribute? <laughs> yeah, there's some tribute. I don't know if they if you go there and like threaten to burn them and then you get tribute, or if you just look rad and then they like worship you as a god. Anyway, you yeah. can go there and gain loyalty, basically. Through some fashion or another, and then you get kind of a reoccurring income from those towns. Big picture mechanics. There's some moving about the grid. There is, there's some combat. You can initiate combat by basically moving into another dragon. Yeah. Um, There's some resource collection by, you know, dominating these, these towns and cities for income. And you're basically trying to get to 50 gold. Yeah, 50 points, which yeah. is your money. Yeah. Um, so it's a very simple game, and it has a lot of promise. I don't know. Do we want to get into the negatives now? It's It looks so cool. Yeah, well, and so because of that, I want it to be a great game, but it's it's fairly disappointing. It's not bad. Yeah, so I think a lot of our criticisms of the game stem around this kind of randomness that's injected into points of of the play into every part of the game yeah nearly 
everything you do requires a dice roll or involves drawing a card. Yeah, so if you if you attack a another dragon as a means of either getting gold or sending them back to their den, you just have a die roll. You have off. a die roll. Yeah. Tie goes to the the winner and you might have a card that gives you a Ty bonus. Tie goes to the winner. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh man. Tie goes to the attacker. Tie goes to the attacker. You Which might is have... always a nice touch, by the way. I like that. Yes, that's the commit. For what... I that's think of it the, as the, and, uh, the and quantum. Quantum. Yeah. But still, you're rolling die. For combat, you're rolling die to place these towns. So every round, you're going to place basically four towns on this, this six well, by six. Well, it was number grid. of players plus one. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's random. Yeah, you, you roll the two dice and it shows you where on the grid to place them. So, well, before we get into it deeper, to summarize, our criticisms are basically basically that there's too much randomness. Unnecessary randomness, too. Uh, well, I, I but, think we're skipping over the two most important parts of the randomness that okay. really detract. Uh, that you have to roll a die to see how much tribute you get at the end of each round. True. And if you roll a one, not only do you get literally nothing... You have to remove one of your loyalty markers from one of the towns. Yeah. Which could be a difference of like 10 points. And in a game that goes up to 50, that's a lot. And then if you roll a six, it like increases your tribute by like one and a half or two times. Yeah. Which can again be like five to 10 points. Yeah, so your very income is based on a die roll. Mm -hmm. And then also the cards. And then the cards. Although... Yeah, I mean, that's definitely random, but I, I'm not sure I have as much a problem with the cards as I do with the the, the die rolling. because with Well, the, I have a problem with how powerful the cards are. The cards are very I don't powerful. mind having a randomly, you know, drawn from a deck what's, selection what's of action What's the average cards? card worth? Maybe like an action and a half? You get three actions on your turn. You know, some of them are just straight well, up. Well, no, one of them was like place a loyalty token on every single adjacent town tile right which which you know in one in one situation in the game i got to place on four that's like 10 actions yeah to move to those places and then place loyalty on them yeah one of them lets you just go three spaces and destroy everything in your path which nullifies a significant number of actions i guess the only mitigating factor here is everyone draws cards at the beginning of their hand you can you can cycle through them a little bit they're all sort of powerful. So, yes, it is very random, but, like, we all got both of those cards that you mentioned. I forget what they're called, but the one that basically lets you go on a rampage and destroy towns, and the one that, I think it's Menacing Roar, mm-hmm. that lets you basically dominate everything around you at once. Uh, we, all three of us, saw those cards in the in the course of the game. Sure, but that wasn't necessarily going to happen and even then the timing of it is significant true not only in what portion of the game you're in but where you are on the board i happened to draw it when i was in the middle of a bunch of towns they are very powerful so it was interesting though so i asked the designer who was there teaching us uh, after we played i asked him you know when in the design process did you decide to incorporate these like die rules in key moments of the game to this randomness and um he he really likes that element of you know basically you know the better player is going to put themselves in a better position but then it, it comes down to this you know random uh random factor yeah i i mean i could almost tell that his answer was one he had said many times because that's got to be the first thing people ask when they play this game if they're asking about the design process is why is there so much dice rolling and why are you know these random cards so significant and i i don't have anything wrong with randomness there are very few like non-random perfect information games that i've played let alone liked i love a sprinkling of randomness There are two problems here. The first problem, I think, is that there's just literally too much randomness. That, especially that tribute roll, is so significant. Like, I got a six. Like you said, if if you roll a six, you could get... 
Well, I rolled a six, what, three times in a row, and right. I surged ahead. So I had, like, if you, twice as many points as you If you point. currently have a couple cities in a town, then that's, like, 14 gold for, yeah. for, the, for that six. Whereas, if you rolled a one, you, you get, get zero. Nothing. And lose the town. Yeah. I don't understand that decision. Well, I don't understand why it's so significant. It could have been a factor of a point or two between... You know, purse town or whatever. It, it could have been like the 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 distance between rolling a one and a six and everything in between could have been shrunk easily, and I think it would make a substantially better game. But as it is, it's just so powerful. It's interesting. So the way that this movement happens, it's it's a you know, it's six by six grid isn't that big. Yeah, for three or four players, it could have had a much more not not chess-like feel, but kind of calculating area control, pr- protecting feel, mm-hmm. you know, as, you know, you only have one really piece that you're moving, the dragon, mm-hmm. but it could have been way more calculating if there weren't these random factors in the game. Another thing I think is very significant is that, well, let's talk about our game. I was ahead... A large portion of the game due to getting that big that one card where I got like four at once, yeah. four pounds at once, yeah. and rolling sixes. Yeah. And so I was, I was substantially ahead. But ultimately you won the game, I think, for the sole reason that I was sitting to the left of Amber. Because yeah. it has that power grid thing where and commit where the person last chooses the turn order. And in this game, because you can take sub- substanti- so many substantial actions, going last is a huge advantage, right? Because you can take away, if you have one of those cards or, or a powerful card, you can take away from the leader. You can you can do things that, that can't be fought against until the next round. So you can do something to get a bunch of, of, of tribute and then cash in on that and then not have it opposed until the next round. Yeah. And because Amber was in last most of the game... She chose me to go first because I was to her left, and I felt like that hurt me so much because everything I I could do then was just mitigated by you guys, and then yeah, because it, I could never go true. go last again, I could never recover. Yeah, it's kind of interesting the way the map was randomly generated. I ended up not interacting with the two of you very much. I interacted with Amber early in the game a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, the two of you kind of duked it out more over that glut of villages that was right in between you. Right. So, yeah, I wasn't as affected by that turn order, but I think you're right. I think that if you had been um, if you had been going last or even just... Or like, even second to or, last in front of you in, or yeah. behind you, I mean, I yeah, think I could have pulled it off. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It also has that three-way dynamic of like Amber and I were both doing the things that we could to steal your gold to keep you under 50. Yeah, and I don't mind that. Yeah. You know, that's any almost any multiplayer game. But it it's also like compounded with that random factor. Like at one point in time, it came down to I think Amber attacked you and if she won, she was going to steal your gold to knock you under 50. Mm-hmm. If she lost, you were going to be above 50 and win the game. Yeah. Um, and she won. Right. And, and then I, that kept me down in the U. Yeah. And then a couple of turns later, I rocketed past. It's interesting to me. We hadn't talked about this very much before. Like, we talked a little bit about how we thought it was too random. But as we're discussing it, what comes to mind is that it doesn't seem like we have many quibbles with the game on principle. Like, you know, it has, yeah. it has a heavy comeback mechanism in turn order, like Comet and Power Grid. It has randomness, which I don't think is necessarily bad. I like games with randomness. I think it's just a matter of scale. Like, yeah, there's absolutely. There's just too much randomness absolutely. and it's too severe. And uh, one thing that's important to note, from a game design perspective, the traditional Euro game design idea is that if you're going to have randomness, it's better to have pre-decision randomness rather than post-decision randomness. And in this game... It's all post. Except for the cards, which yeah, you draw yeah, before yeah. you make the decision to use them. But yeah. everything else is post-decision. And and I don't necessarily buy in that pre-decision randomness is always better. But 
It's just yeah. a matter of scale. There's just too much and it's too significant to make the game interesting. At a certain point when a game's too swingy and there's too much going on, you feel like you lose your own agency in the game. And I think that's what happens here. I agree. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's a funny case study because, I mean, the game's published and it's out there and it, you know, it was made intentionally. Um, but I feel like we would really like this game if he had, you know, picked a different mechanic for combat and for you know, for stealing gold other than just a die roll. I, I, I think there there could have been something extremely interesting. And yeah. and obviously, you know, the production is great, interesting, unique. It's kind of a shame. I feel like it's a shame because... Yeah, I think it could be a much better game. It could have been a and much better game. I don't think it's game. a bad game. I think yeah. it's, it's probably a lot better as a family game with smaller kids. Right. It's just kind of frivolous. Like, why... Yeah. Why spend an hour playing that when you could play, I don't know, Suburbia or something? Or, or even like Carcassonne. Or, Carcassonne, yeah. Um, which I think is one of the games he, the designer mentioned when he talked about kind of games, that, like the kind of games he likes to play. And that really, I was I was very confused because there's not that much randomness in Carcassonne. I mean, especially compared to this game. Like there's, there's again, the pre-decision randomness of drawing the tile, but the game's designed as such that you then have two very important decisions of where to place it and what to do with your workers. I don't know. Again, not a bad game, just kind of mediocre for me. I wish I wish it was better, especially when, when I look at it. Like, it, it looks so cool. Moving now to another game we played that night that unfortunately was extremely disappointing. <laughs> I don't even remember the name of it. It had to do with pirates. It, it's the Pirates of the Carib, Carib Bean. Bean. Yes. <laughs> Which is a strange name. It's the name seems to be entirely to let's justify say, itself. Yeah, yeah. Let's say this: the name kind of has all of the mechanics of the game within the name. I think it seems like at least they came up with the name first and then yeah. designed the game. So the game is about being a pirate rat. A pirate rat, and you're trying to collect. Pie. Pies. That's not in the name. Why pies? Pie rat. Oh, You're it is in the name. Rat. Yes. Okay, yes. never mind. Of the Caribbean. And then there's this... like. There's an action called called the Caribbean, the Caribbean. which is yeah. apparently a real bean. Yeah. <laughs> it has, to my knowledge, no relation to the Caribbean. It might relate to the Caribbean. Maybe they grow in the Caribbean. I don't know. But I don't think they relate to rats yeah. or pie. So we so we should say this is a successfully Kickstarter game. There have been a couple expansions on Kickstarter. Um, or they're about to release expansions on Kickstarter? They've done at least one, and I think they have two planned. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember. So somewhat six I mean, it, it's out there on Kickstarter. But I think I think we agree we were not impressed with with the gameplay here. <laughs> yeah, because it was the first game we played and either the designer or at least someone from the company was was there and she was very excited to show us one of the games. And she's like, well, I have uh, this game about rat pirates. And I was like, oh, cool. That sounds interesting. And I have another game that was like a dexterity game with dice. And I'm like, yeah, let's do the rat game because that sounds interesting. And they had these cool play mats they had made set up. And she's like, oh, it's a, it's a card game. And it was just increasing levels of disappointment as the game went on, I think. And I feel really bad saying this, but at the same time, like it's a published game and I am, you know, a game reviewer here and I feel bad on one hand about criticizing games too harshly. But on the other hand, I feel like to be professional, you got to be honest about it. So I'm just going to say, this was a very, very bad game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so run through the run through the gameplay real quick because it, it, it'll be short. So you get three cards, and there are a couple types of cards. You have rats, which are your main resource, and they're you know the, the arts the arts good. It has rats. They're like your pirates. crew. They're yeah, your they're crew. your crew. Um, and then they have action cards of the take that variety. Of like, aha, you don't get what you wanted to get. You know, you know, those kinds of cards. Those are the only types of cards. And then the pies, which is what you're going for. 
There were charisma bonuses. Oh, yeah, charisma. I forgot about that. So you get your cards, and then you just put them down in front of you, unless they're an action card, because there's no reason not to do that, which was disappointing, because you don't really have a choice there. And then you're trying to build up enough strength with your rat cards to meet a certain threshold to steal a pie. And the pies give you points. And then you have these charisma cards, which help you steal rats from other crews, from other players. And then the action cards that I talked about. So you get your hand of cards. If they're rats or charisma, you place them down in front of you, and they give you a certain point total of strength and loyalty and charisma. And then everyone goes around and decides if they want to steal a rat from someone else or if they want to protect one of their own rats. And we worked it out that in almost every situation you want to steal, in like 95% of the time, so there's not much of a choice there. And then starting with first player, you all go around and do that thing. And then usually like 80% of the time, it ended up with everyone having the exact same strength they had before. Because you're just stealing the highest strength pirate pirate yeah. that you can. <laughs> yeah. And the charisma cards are plentiful enough that you're usually just able to get the highest one on the board. And, and then, then the final thing is that you go in turn order and use up your rats to get... To get pies. Pies, which are the scoring points. Yes. And, yeah, they're just... There are no decisions in the game. Yeah, that that's just it. There are no decisions because the cards you draw, you put down in front of you. There's no reason not to. And then... um, You're almost always going to steal. You know, the... Yeah, and then... And then you just steal the highest powered one that you're able to. And then when it's time to take the pies, the first person in the turn order that can take them takes them. Unless someone has a take that action card. Which, like, destroys one of your rats or steals it or... Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, I mean, there's not, not much... I guess there's not much to talk there's about not here. Much to talk but about. The I guess the thing is, we come across these games that I just like aren't aren't made for like they're not they're not aimed at. I mean, I board guess gamers? it's I don't know because you know the lady was very nice who was teaching us the game, and I think in our discussions she talked about other games she enjoys, and they're the kind of games we enjoy. It it just wasn't a a good game it was kind of along the line of like munchkin or exploding kittens yeah yeah but didn't have any moments of surprise or excitement that those games potentially have yeah Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot again i feel bad about it but i you know i have to be honest it's it's a bad i get the sense it's the kind of game that you know kind of uh, a family with a family might enjoy with kids but it's not a game I would recommend to that audience. I would say there are better games you can play with your kids. Oh, yeah. Um, but I guess, I mean, that's the audience that would enjoy it. The theme was fun. Sure. I mean, and, and incredibly punny. I'll give give them credit for yeah, that. Yeah, many puns. <laughs> um, like you said, it, it doesn't lead to inter- interesting decisions. And really, yeah, that's, I guess that's what... In a light game like this, that is, it's not very long. It's 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 fairly simple. It's very simple. At least give interesting decisions. Right. I mean, that's the core of what a game is, is interesting decisions. And I don't think that the game that gives you the most interesting decisions is necessarily better, but you have to have that. You have to have decisions that are interesting, that are real choices. Even on family level games and kid games, it's the same thing that I talk about with movies. Like... You know, I talk about, you know, how this is kind of a tangent, but, you know, when I see, like, the new big blockbuster movies or superhero movies, I'm often somewhat disappointed. And the rebuttal to me is always, well, you know, it's good as just a movie or just entertainment. And you have the same argument with kids' movies where it's like, oh, that movie wasn't very good. And and the response is, well, you know, it's made for kids. But... That's just, to me, that's just a complete cop-out. Like, there are good kids' movies. Like, look at what Pixar has done over the years. Like, there are good kids' movies. Look at, like, the original Willy Wonka. Look at, like, these things can exist, and they can be intelligent. And I think, as a culture, when we talk about any kind of sorts of, uh, of entertainment for the family, or especially for children, we do ourselves a disservice by just lowering the bar. 
Yeah. Kids are yeah. smarter yeah. than you think. And it's it doesn't help anyone when we pander yeah. to them. It just increases the popularity of poor kids and family products. And and we're not so and I'm I, not saying that this company did that. I, this is a very yeah, broad yeah, tangent yeah, yeah, mostly yeah. about movies because I'm a movie nerd too. But it seems along those lines where it's like, oh, yeah, this and, game and got so, popular, and but it's bad. It's like, oh, but it's just supposed to be a lighthearted, fun time. So I'll, I'll say this, and, and it wasn't like they, you know, it wasn't like they were espousing this uh, philosophy. No, of no, game not design. at all. Um, but even as we sat down before we knew about the game, it was clear that this was light, like a very. It was going to be a very punny experience and kind of lighthearted, and that's fine. Like, but there are great games that are that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I uh, mean, th- that's not the that's not the excuse to not make a good game. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I guess that's my rant <laughs> for for that game. Apologies if you were part of the making of this game. And are listening to this, I hope, I, I really do hope their other games are better. Because, you know, it, it's got to be hard as a new publisher. I think this is their first game. And, you know, part of me has to be humble. I've never made a game. You know, making a game successfully kickstarting it is a big accomplishment. I, I just hope their future games are better. So speaking of first-time games from new publishers, we got to play test a game yeah from a friend of a friend or the dad of a friend yes from me the, the <laughs> it goes through you i'm the to friend. the daughter to the dad and uncle who actually made the game yes and we got to do a play test of of the game of of a almost complete prototype yeah and it was it was it was really interesting it's the first time i've done like a real play test so i came into it and it was and i didn't know this person and, you know, she knows that I review games and it's like, well, how, how critical do they want me to be? How nitpicky do they want me to be? And I was, I was, I was very nitpicky on the rule book, but which I hope helps them out because some parts of the rule book weren't, weren't written very well, but. And, and that's a hard thing completely, to, completely besides making a oh, game. Oh yeah. So I, everything I think I've well read. Taken. Everything I've read says that, like, the hardest part is writing the rule book. And, like, me, part of me thinks is, like, okay, I've written logically and very linearly, like, since I was 12 years old, you know, building debate cases and stuff. I could write a rule book. I have the feeling whenever I actually design a game and I get to writing the rule book that I'm going to find it, like, 10 times harder than I expect. So I'm trying to brace myself for that, even (laughs) though deep down I'm kind of prideful. (laughs) Um, it wasn't a bad rule book. It just had a a couple of things and, uh, it was a decent game. I think it was kind of a resource collection, at least part of the, the, the idea of the game is that it has a modular board and there are a few different setups and like, even like main objectives to the game change as the setup changes. And from what I understand, talking to this friend of ours, uh, we happened upon an extremely resource-heavy board. Yeah, so that's kind of the interesting idea here is, yeah, how do you make, I guess it's like a replayability question, or how do you make each game unique, each play unique? And I think they they have a very interesting way of doing it. It's very interesting. So the actual map modular map Mm -hmm. changes basically randomly three map sections out of however many there are. I think they said five in the base game and they'll have expansions later. Yeah. And so not only does the actual selection of which modules are in the game, but also the, like the geometry of what order they're in and stuff like that matters. Right. And not only does it matter in terms of what resources are available to you or in what you know, how, how close they are to each other, but the literally the objectives of the game are tied to the map boards. So in our game, there was one that involved moving a dragon around a certain number of times. There was a dragon that could like destroy things in its path. That was one of the objectives. The objective on the second board was building a certain building until like all three copies of that building were built. And the third one had to do with fighting a troll monster and it's minions or something a certain yeah, number of times. Yeah. And so it's this kind of like high, you know, generic high fantasy thing. I kind of 
they had a whole page of like lore that I skipped over, but now I kind of wish I didn't, but I was trying <laughs> to figure out the rules quickly because it was a blind play test. Yeah. And you basically, you move around, you establish like workers on different resource spots to give you resources, and then you can build buildings and then do other things based on the map tiles. And there are also action cards involved that let you do certain things, and those are also tied to the board. The buildings are all unique and tied to the three different board segments. So everything's really, you almost get like these five board modules. Yeah. And then you pick three of them, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But I think what we found in this game, and I'd love to play it again to see if this really was a, a big, as big of an outlier as I might, as I think it might have been. But, like, resources were pouring into us. Yeah, it so felt kind of nice, because right. usually so, it's very hard to get resources in games. It, it was kind of funny in the... You know, it's, it's one of those games where you have to get your engine going as soon as possible. Right. And I think Tim and you and I all had the same idea of... We were going to go for, I don't know, I, I forget what the resources were, but let's say stone so that we could build this particular building that would... Give us wood, passive give us wood income. Passive wood income. Yeah. And we all had this idea, and then I think I was the third of the three of us, so I ended up having to do something else. But basically did the same thing with a, a, another set of resources. But we all did that in the first round. And then... By like round three, I felt like I was getting like, 10 to 15 resources a turn yeah and um of the varying types you know, the big point scoring buildings were in in the in the ballpark of like 12 to 15 resources yeah uh, different types. So, so like very quickly we we're getting to a point yeah. where we're like we could buy an end game building basically so or at least the highest point scoring building like once a turn so that's a really interesting problem is if you have this modular modular design you know, what happens when all of the resource-heavy modules come out? Right. You know, all of a sudden, then it's just like a, you know, a mad exponential rush to the end. Right. If this really was the outlier and this was like the as resource-heavy as it could possibly get if you, you know, planned it out, I think it's okay. Because it was still a pretty fun game. It was all right. It felt, again, a little bit too easy to do things. I never felt... You know, usually on these kind of resource gathering, engine building games, like the the key fun part of the game is like the tension of trying to of trying to scramble to get the resources you need in a very tight space as, you know, edging out other people and things like that. And in this one, it was like everyone kind of got to do what they wanted to do. And then I think mostly because I was first player, I ended up winning the game. Yeah. Because yeah. I got one extra turn. Yeah. And and that was about it. It kind of just it, it very quickly got to the point where everyone's just kind of sitting around doing you know getting the resources they needed and then just doing the action they needed to get to trigger the end of the game. Right. I guess right. it's the opposite problem that we have with some euro games where they end right when it's getting fun. This yeah. game it got fun and then it it stayed too long. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, exactly. Because we had, because it felt like we just had these crazy engines of resource gathering. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a shame we only got to play it once because it is a modular game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what it's like with... I want to play a really, the, really tight... I want to play the tightest we looked map at the construction. Maps. We looked at the maps and at least one of the ones that we didn't play with was just barren. Oh, yeah. They had nothing on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if we play it again, I'm going to ask to just make give me the three tightest on resource maps possible and let's see how it goes. Because I want to see what the other end of the spectrum is. And if it's still like really breezy to accomplish your objectives, it's it's not going to be... I'm, I'm going to be disappointed if that's true. But I'm hoping it creates almost like a fundamentally different experience. Because yeah. that's what you're... I think that's kind of what they're going for is like each game is going to be very different. It's kind of like the, the sales pitch for uh, 504. Yes, that's what I was thinking um, of, yeah. But not quite as stupidly ambitious yeah. as 504 different game constructions. And by all accounts, that game did not succeed very well at all. Um, and I think what they're doing in this game is, is a lot more manageable. So I'm hoping it kind of accomplishes that sales pitch and we just got a very weird outlier game. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that I, I was 
kind of uh, thinking of in comparison, we've been playing Near and Far um, mm-hmm. recently, which has these beautiful maps. It has this this booklet, and you you turn the page, and it's another map, and each one has a central town, but then these paths that go out um, different lengths and kind of a, a web of paths that you end up adventuring on. Mm-hmm. So playing this game, uh, playtesting this new game, it had a more kind of static grid configuration. Yeah, it was just a square grid. Yeah, and I, w- I was thinking, I don't know how much you would have to change the gameplay at all to get kind of this... To do a point-by-point map? Kind of a point-by-point map with, um, yeah, like almost just some some beautiful cartography, we'll call it. You know, <laughs> you know I, I'm not really looking for a gameplay change, just... Make it interesting with you know something other than a grid. I don't mind the grid. Yeah, really. I mean, I think hexagonal grids are almost objectively better than square grids. Okay. I mean, for by certain criteria, they they definitely are right because you have the problem with square grids if you if you allow diagonal movement, that's basically giving a diagonal movement one and a half times as power as an orthogonal movement. But if you don't allow it, then it's costs two to go diagonal when it should cost one and a half. You have that weird problem. If it's a hexagon, it doesn't matter because everything's equidistant as it should be almost. But the the big thing for me is that I wish the map was tighter. And I don't know if lessening up on the resources would help that because we played at four players and that's the maximum player count. And even at that player count, there were plenty of resources to go around and there, there was plenty of space to go around. And they do have a combat system in this game, and it just didn't seem necessary. If it was just two players, like imagine a two-player game on that map. Like you could just spend your time, like divide it up. One person takes one half of the map, the other person takes the other half, and never interact with each other at all on the map, and still accomplish everything you wanted to accomplish, pretty much. Yeah. So that worries me a bit that it's just too open, not only on the resources, but spatially. I, I would like it to be a lot tighter in, in Meteor. And that might not mean shrinking the map. It might mean changing like movement rules for your soldiers or adding another class of soldier that but again, with can the, do other so things. So just thinking of the near and far thing, you know, with near and far, you have point to point so you can create whatever kind of web of movement you want. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be really interesting to have. Oh, I think it would. Like a modular near and, and it far. And it wouldn't be hard to do modularly. You just have like two or three lines that hit the same spaces on the side each yeah, time. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I, I think we're going to be able to play test it at least once more, I hope. And I would love to see you know how it progresses. I think it's fairly close to being like the final build but yeah i know that they're they have plans for a kickstarter fairly soon fairly soon i think okay yeah within the next six months i I believe okay it'll be interesting i I definitely want to play a much more tighter uh, tighter map construction next time to see what the other end of the spectrum is all right moving back to the indie board game night we're going to be closing off with the game that we just played right at the end yeah we were thinking of going home and i'm like you know it's me, so I want to play as many things as I possibly can squeezed into the time frame. I was thinking the same thing. And there was this game sitting out there called Chess Collation. Yeah. Which, first of all, is a cool name. It's cool. I Maybe. like it. <laughs> it sounds like the name of a heavy metal band, almost. I don't, I don't know. Or don't maybe know. a song from a heavy metal band. Yeah. Like a nerdy one. Maybe like, like like math metal. I okay okay. Now there we go. Now, now we're you're hitting. Make, now you're hitting. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a math a nerdy math metal band. Chesscalation. Anyway, it's a chess variant kind of game played. We took us a while to remember this on a six by five grid, uh, five rows across, six rows deep, mm-hmm. and. It was really good. And it, I wasn't expecting it, really. It kind of blindsided me. First of all, I should say, I am awful at chess. Oh, me too. I talked about this on one of the posts on the site. 
Yeah. Uh, we should talk about that time we duped Orion into thinking we were okay at chess. Yes. We, uh, Orion and Wes were driving back to Boston from Pittsburgh. Right. And he texts us and says, hey, want to play me in a game of blind chess? Because him and Wes were doing it on the road, right? Right. It, right. Like, Orion was driving and... Be- Playing beating the game Wes in his head in in yes in Orion's head, and Wes had the game like going on his phone or something. Yeah, Orion's really good at chess. Yes. So anyway, he texts us and say, "Hey, I challenge you to a game of blind chess." So, but only him being blind because he's driving. Yeah. So ostensibly, I think it was he was challenging me. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, I he's still gonna beat me, right? Even though he can't see the board because. He's that good, I'm, and so, I'm that bad. I want to say that it was my... Um, it was your idea? Yes, my devious idea that we simply set up a, a hard mode... Chess computer chess program. computer on like chess.com or something, and um, put his moves in as our own, and then <laughs> report back to him what the computer... And I think he lasted pretty long. He did fairly well. We won in the end. I remember at one point, he was, like, shocked at how clever our moves were. Um, when he came, when, when he arrived in Boston, um, he wanted to talk strategy. Yeah, <laughs> was, was, I wasn't even paying attention to the strategy of the game because yeah. I don't know anything. Um, I think he was pretty mad at us. We, we're good people. We told him what we did almost immediately. And, yeah, it was pretty mean of us. Yeah, but, but we're off with chess. Um, so yeah, I believe he's forgiven us by now. Maybe I, I don't so. know. It's one of those things where he's so much better at chess than we are that I don't feel bad. <laughs> I felt bad. Yeah. So anyway, so so chess chesscalation chesscalation. This is Mark and I playing. <laughs> and so how it works is you have your king out like in normal chess, and that's in the middle back row. And then you have these, you know, across the second row, each side has basically pawns, but they're worse than pawns. Yeah. Because Recruits can, can only go forward. They can only go and capture forward one space at a time. So they're, they're, they're your basic unit for the game. And the rules are you can move a piece, like in chess, or you can place a new piece on the board only if it has a greater point value than all of the other pieces on the board individually not combined and each piece shows exactly what its point value is you like one up to nine i think the queen or no the queen yep. was 10 right queen was 10 one to 10 yeah. one to 10 yeah or and, you, and you place it in your half in your half of the board yeah or you can swap a piece on the board so you remove one piece and put another piece as long as that piece the place you're putting on has a greater point value than the one you're taking off and you cannot add a piece to the board that creates check. That's the only other rule, basically. And it created a really fascinating game. Because, you know, normal chess, it, it first of all, it kind of bypasses... Well, it bypasses a lot of things that chess has, right? The openings, the development of your pieces, that kind of first third of the game, from what I understand, where, you know, you have, you know, like a hundred standard openings or whatever, and you have all the responses, and, and then you're developing pieces and getting into position to play the game. In this game, that takes like two turns. Because you could just, if you wanted to, you could just place the queen down turn one in position to, you know, do some real damage. It would be a bad decision because, Probably. as we found out later, you want to play, you want to place the lowest point value piece you can afford to place or else you lock yourself out of being able to place new pieces. Maybe. But, maybe. But it 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 really gets to the exciting part of the game to us noobs very quickly. Yeah, one thing you haven't mentioned is that on this continuum of up to 10 points, mm-hmm. there are unique pieces at each value. And so they move in ways that are what more complicated or more nuanced than just regular chess so you well, have your typical bishop you have your typical rook um knights um you have the queen yeah but then you have all the chef chess pieces except the pawns are can capture in front of them for some reason yeah but then slightly more um complicated than that 
are, are like there's like a spy that can just move forward or, um, or backwards diagonally. Yeah. And then the Lancer was cool. It, what was that? That was the one that can only move straight forward as far as it wants, or it can move passively to this to either side of itself. Okay. So it can move like to the right or left as long as it's not, it, but it can't capture to the right or left. It can only capture straight ahead. Yeah. So you kind of move it along across the rows and like jab it at something. And then kind of right under the queen's point value are the general maybe i don't remember what their names well it it was like the bishop king and then the the rook king so like they they move like a bishop or a rook but then can also move one space in the other direction yes yeah and they also had a couple of pieces that could attack at range so it had like the catapult which could attack like two up and one over on either side without moving it just kills a piece which was kind of cool because they're defensive units, but once your opponent gets close to your king, they can't do much because they're only like backline defensive blocking a couple spots units. And the game not only goes, another big thing about the game is not only goes to checkmate like real chess, but it also goes to 50 points. So there are two different win conditions, which makes it interesting because to me, the first part of the game was not only you are able to be very aggressive and kind of put pieces like already developed on the board. But you are also playing this really passive aggressive Cold War kind of game where you're just trying to line up favorable trades. Because everything you put on the board could almost be captured by another piece. So you're trying to line up favorable trades where you can get higher level, you know, higher points just from, you know, you kill another piece and then they kill you. And so the first part of the game was really cool because I was just trying to create good trades everywhere and yeah. then just wait for Matt to pull the trigger on it, So I can, which happened at one point, and then I got ahead of points. And then once I yeah. was ahead in points, I was able to do some very bold things, and I was really trying to put you on the defensive. Yeah, so what I was trying to do at a certain point, a couple of turns in, I was like, okay, Mark has a little bit better position than I do. So I'm just going to try to wreck his units and let him win the point battle. And you were going to go for checkmate. So I was going to go for checkmate, uh, which is kind of cool that we... We had completely different philosophies on it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe after 10 plays, we would settle on what's better. But it was really interesting that we were doing different things. As it turned out, at the end of the game, I was I had the better position. I was, well, you locked yourself. You played your queen at some point during that big battle in the middle. Yeah, which effectively locked you out of placing more pieces because I killed all well, your. Yeah. Well, I ended up killing all your lower point pieces, and then you just had the queen and like well, the I, eight point piece. I had the nine. No, I had the nine point piece out, so the queen was the only thing that I could play. And then that was it. And then you literally couldn't play anymore until I killed your pieces. But yeah. I, I had enough points where if I did kill them, you would lose anyway. Yeah. So we so- got in this situation where Matt puts me in check, but I could just move and kill his queen to get the final 10 points I needed to win the game. But I would still be in check. Which, according to the designer, had never happened before. Yeah, so that's an And so we're like, well, what's the rule? And he's like, well, I don't have a rule. I guess I should make a rule for this. And then we discussed what the rules should be. And uh, I think it settled on me winning. I don't know. Yeah, I think it settled on you winning, but we were really unsatisfied that you remained in check. Well, Amber was full, fully on the side of the you can't win while in check. Yeah. Which I think is a reasonable decision, but I kind of wanted to win that game because I thought I played very well. <laughs> I'm actually really happy that's how the game ended because I just felt completely like... I felt like I had the momentum the whole game. Yeah, you had the momentum. I mean, I was happy with like the... Like I said, I kind of cleared your pieces off the board there for a bit. I, I guess I kind of executed my strategy. It wasn't a good strategy, but... Well, I mean, at the end of the game, I was attacking your king rather than the other way around. Well, and the interesting thing is that unlike real chess, where, you know, they do have point values for the pieces, but just kind of for in, in strategic terms, so you can kind of get a rough estimate of who's winning or who's losing. 
based on points. But that's only indicative of who generally probably has the best position in the game. In Chescalation, it changes the game much more dramatically because if you're ahead in points, you all you have to do is just trade out to win the game. Right. So you can then take more risks, which is what I did, which kind of put me in hot water because you were doing some pretty crazy stuff with your high-powered pieces while well, I was trying to get at your queen and be more aggressive, but I should have probably just paid, played more passively to begin with. I don't know. Yeah. But I really want to play again because I want to explore these really new dynamics that seem... And again, I don't play chess that much, but I kind of know a bit in theory. But it seems like it it plays with kind of the emotions and the broad level strategies of chess in new but kind of familiar ways. Yeah, and I thought it was really fun. It, it was it was fun. Um, you know, it, it's hard to remix a game that has been like one. You know, the best game in the world for hundreds of years. Well, not the best game. Oh, well, I, yeah, yeah. It's like the game. I don't know. Chess and Go. Chess and Go. Okay. Well, I mean, the the old, old, old games that are still around today are Chess Go and Backgammon. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But backgammon's more of a gambling game. It's kind of like halfway between a board game and a gambling game. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but um, it's hard to remix a game like that. And so my expectations were definitely low for a remix chess. Uh, but it turned out to be, you know, put us into these really interesting strategic and tactical decisions. Yeah, and because I think because the board is smaller, it actually is a more familiar or it's a more friendly entry point to kind of chess ideas yeah. because there's just not as much space to think about, like physical space. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder, though, if there's a more significant first player advantage in this game because it's so much about trading pieces and getting favorable trades that... It seems to me, and I I can't explain exactly why, it seems like first player advantage might be a, a real thing. Yeah, I don't And know. it is in chess a bit. I think it's like a 3% advantage or something, but it might be more significant here. I really want to play this with Orion to see what he thinks of it because he's the chess player. Yeah. But I kind of just want to, I just want to play with anyone again. I, I want to kind of figure out this game and, and, and test out new strategies. Yeah, so best case scenario, I feel like this game has kind of that infinite possibilities replayability of chess, but also has kind of those macro strategy, interesting macro strategy decisions of do I go for the points victory? Do I go for the the checkmate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's exciting. I don't know. This this kind of game normally isn't my cup of tea, but... um, Yeah, I'm not a big abstract abstract game i i i respect them more than i like them it's it's the respect but that's that's a good way of putting it well i think you were touching on something something interesting in that it has a lot of a lot of the micro tactical things of chess are there in in terms of like establishing board control and trading favorably but it changes a lot of things in a more broad macro sense. It's easier because for the, you have the point victory. Yeah, and because it's it's a tighter game, smaller grid, and because you can always you can bring pieces back. They're not gone yeah. Forever. It's easier for those macro decisions to to influence you, I guess. More yeah, influence in a noticeable way. Yeah, I mean, over a bunch of plays, it might end up being a dud, but I don't think so. I think it's. I think it has a lot of potential here. And we will say that we talked with the designer who, you know, who taught us to play and everything. And he, if you're, if you're a publisher out there, he is looking to be published. Yeah. And I don't know if I was a publisher. Well, I don't know how well abstract games or chess variations do like on a market level, but in terms of like a good game, I would be all over this as a publisher. Like I, I think it really works well. One thing that you haven't mentioned is uh, the pieces were actually really good. So he had um, wooden pieces, mm-hmm. and on the top of the piece was a little, little mini diagram. board yeah. that actually showed exactly what movements that piece could do. Which is 
not only looks cool, but is clever in a sense of that it teaches the game without having to remember anything. Yeah, um, I, you know, as we as we said, there's a there are unique pieces for every point value from one to ten, but that was not any problem at all for us in the first game because we could see what the pieces did. Well, it's just such a clever idea because you know part of chess is just that's hard for me at least is kind of the spatial visualization. Like I know what all the pieces do, but it's very hard to kind of look at the board and know which spaces are threatened and all the potential moves that could be played when you're looking at not only a smaller board, but one that have the pieces that show you exactly what they're able to do, even though you, you, you know, it's a Bishop piece. I know what a Bishop does, but even just the aid of just seeing it on the piece itself makes it just that much a little more friendlier. Yeah. Which is really cool. But I think we will go ahead and go to what you're getting to. Oh yeah. So yeah. In addition to that little helpful diagram on the top, the, um, the height is indicative of the point value. Yeah. So the nine point piece is a little bit higher than the eight point piece all the way down to your recruits, the lowest points that are, you know, very thin. Right. Yeah. Um, which again, as a publisher, I don't know if that's, it's probably not viable with wooden pieces. I don't know the expenses of things, but maybe plastic pieces, you could do a very similar thing Yeah. where the heights change. I, I think that's, that's awesome. Because again, it's just another visual cue that not only makes the game look more dynamic and interesting, but actually aids the players in understanding the importance of things. For sure. Um, it, it's interesting. In our game, I was more aware of how I was maxed out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had my nine piece out in the and the queen is the only thing I could bring out. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of in an all-in situation. But it was cool to visualize because I had the tall pieces on the board. You had, I don't I forget what you had, but... And a variety of things. You had a few more pieces of, of varying heights. Right. And that's just, it's it's just clever design. Like one of the principles of game design is that you want important things or high-powered things to be somehow bigger uh, physically or distinct visually. These have to be distinct from less important things. I think I mentioned this before. I saw a really interesting talk on video games. I believe it was about the Halo games where the designers were talking about, it was a sound design thing where they're talking about how not only do they need to have the guns, you know, the alien and the human guns sound like they look like they should sound, but their power needs to be tied to the sound itself as well. So oh, yeah. a more powerful gun on a strict mechanical level, if it does X points of damage, needs to sound more powerful than a similar gun that does a little bit less damage. And I think this is a way in, in, in this particular board game where, where he's able to do exactly the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's cool. So, I, I mean, I hope, he, uh, I hope he gets it published soon. I yeah. hope so. And that wraps up what we played this past week. Like, we played entirely new games. We haven't played... Yeah, no, I mean, before new, new that, to it us, was, but yeah. pretty much new to most people. A couple of them have already been kickstarted, but... But still, I mean, I went to Board Game Geek, and most of them... I think Dragoon maybe has, like, a couple hundred reviews. Everything else has basically nothing. So, you know, these are not well-known games. And in the one case, you know, not even published yet, or, or you know, in two cases, but... It's kind of fun, even though there were, you know, only one that really excited me a lot. It was fun learning new games and kind of talking with the designers and looking at the games from a different perspective. Because normally we're just playing games that we, you know, have researched and have gotten highly favorable reviews already. And we kind of know what they're about and we know it's our kind of game. It's kind of interesting to see the ones that are attempting to get there and see you know where they succeed and where they don't it's cool to see kind of there's a rawness to you know games uh, yeah games in development i mean all four of these games that we've talked about are either published or close to publish ready yeah rawness is is kind of the right word i guess yeah 
I don't know if I want to seek out a bunch of indie games or try to go to meetups or whatever where this is happening a lot. Because I think what would happen is we'd see patterns and just bad game design choices after a while. And that might get annoying. But for but in this experience in particular, I think it was really fun. Even though, again, there was only one game that really excited us. Huge shout out to, to John at Empire Games for pulling that indie game night together. Board Game Empire. Board is, Game is the name of Board it. Board Game Empire. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was really cool to see people from kind of, you know, a couple hour radius, different publishers come. And if you're in the Cambridge, Boston, Somerville area. Absolutely. Uh, come to Monday Night Game Night. Yeah, Monday Night Game Night. We're not there every week because we also do Frisbee on Mondays, but I'm I'm there pretty much every other week, I think. <laughs> I think I'm going to alternate it with Frisbee. Yeah. When it gets cold out, it'll be every week. Yes, yes. And that'll be fun. And that's it for today for the IndieCast. Remember to check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Also remember to rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it at on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And hit me up on Twitter and Facebook where uh, I talk about things I do during the week. Literally hit Mark on Twitter. Yes, if you find a way to physically hit me through Twitter, that will be interesting. And also subscribe to the YouTube channel. As I've been talking about, I have been putting the podcast up on YouTube because I know some people like to listen to them that way. But also subscribe even if you don't listen to the podcast through YouTube because at some point in the fairly near future, I will be having video capabilities and and put up some video content there. So I'm very excited about that and I would like to have people actually see that stuff. So make sure to subscribe to The Thoughtful Gamer on YouTube. To conclude, I, I usually end these these podcasts with a quotation. And the one I found that was relevant to, for today was from the blog of Ignacy Trevicek, who is the person behind Portal Games, who makes great games such as Robinson Crusoe. Not an indie game designer, but he has some really interesting stuff on his board game geek blog where he talks about the design process and play testing and, and, and all of that designer publisher stuff. And at the end of one of his posts, he says uh, something that I think is pretty relevant. He says, don't blame designers for being creative. Don't ask them why they didn't come up with that stuff a year before. It doesn't work like that. The designing process never ends. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.